Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For Thrift Savings Plan investors, 2023 showed some positive signs. The year also brought some changes to the iFund. For more, Federal News Network reporter and co-host of the podcast FedLife talked with certified financial planner Art Stein. We know that there have been some pretty big changes to the iFund. Recently, the TSP board says it's going to improve the risk return profile. Just curious your thoughts on that. Do you think that's accurate or what impact will this have on participants who are invested in the iFund? Well, it's definitely an improvement. The old index or the actually the current index for the iFund, not a good index, hasn't been for many, many years. The TSP board has been trying to change it for some time. And they were going to change it a couple of years ago, but the new index invested in China and Hong Kong. And that was a political issue on the Hill. And many Congress members protested. And so the TSP just didn't do anything. Now they found an index or an index was created for them, which is also possible that invests in the index that they wanted to use, but excludes any Chinese stocks or Hong Kong stocks, stocks of companies based in Hong Kong. So it's basically the same as they tried to do before. One of the reasons they needed to do this is because the iFund, the current index was uh, so poorly constructed, performance was not as good. And because international stocks just weren't doing as well as U.S. stocks, U.S. companies were doing better than foreign companies. You know, if you look at like the 15-year average annual rate of return, it was 6% per year for the I fund. It was 12.5% for the C fund. That's, you know, twice as much. So the current index only invests in developed countries and not all developed countries, and only invest in the stocks of large companies. And for some reason, they excluded Canada from the list of developed countries, which I found very strange. The new index invests in twice as many countries, including a lot of developing countries, and it's invests in seven times as many stocks as the old index. If you look at the top 10 holdings in the new index, compared to the current index, they're mostly the same. The three new ones are Taiwan Semiconductor, which is you know a great company that has monopoly on semiconductor manufacturing, Samsung Electronics, which most people have heard of, and Toyota, which is probably everybody has heard of. And the country weights are different. They have a lot less invested in Japan, United Kingdom, France, Switzerland, countries like that. So I'm glad they're doing this. It's going to take place next year, the changeover. TSP participants, I assume, will not have to do anything. I'm pretty sure they'll just change it. And I think people would be better off. Now, in terms of returns, they're you know really not hugely different. Uh, according to what the TSP put out their press release, the average annual rate of return over the last five years for the new index would have been 4.2% compared to 3.5% for the old index. 
So 4.2 is better than 3.5, but not a huge difference. The new index is actually, again, according to them, slightly more volatile than the old index, but not a big difference. You know, not one that I would consider significant or that anybody needs to worry about. So basically, it's a step forward for the TSP. So Art, given that this, you know, is a pretty significant change, you know, I know that TSP participants who are currently enrolled in the iFund, this will just transition over once that change takes place sometime in 2024. But do you anticipate or do you recommend that TSP participants maybe consider changes to their current investments, maybe invest more in the iFund as a result of this change? That's a very good question. I think people should have international stock exposure. We certainly do it for all our investment clients. But this is still a very narrowly focused fund, and it's an index fund. So it means that they have just bought these companies, probably because they're the largest in each market, without any great attempt to see if they're the best companies or they're going to do better than other companies. And we have found that for international stock indexes, international stock funds, actively managed funds are a better bet than index funds because it's such a huge marketplace. It's better to have someone actually making decisions. Just speaking as well, you alluded to the political pressure that existed. I know this is something that the TSP board has been at least considering this change since 2017. So it's been six or so years now that they've considered changing the iFund. But do you think that the exclusion of Chinese investments is going to have an effect on the overall volatility or the performance of the benchmark index? Does that you know change things for how it'll perform? You know, Drew, it's a very interesting situation. You know, it's sometimes better to be lucky than smart. And I'm not saying that members of Congress are not smart. They are. But they ex- wanted to exclude Chinese stocks for political reasons. And, you know, I did not disagree. And it turns out that since that time, really, the Chinese market has not done well. I mean, certainly TSP participants did not lose out as a result. According to these statistics, if they'd been able to make the change to this new index five years ago, they would have been slightly better off, but not a big difference. But whether people want to switch a higher percentage of their assets into international, you know, I answer that question for my clients all the time, but I don't want to do it just in general because, you know, it may be that international stocks in general continue to lag U.S. stocks. So if people go into more into the I fund, it might reduce the volatility of their overall portfolio, but it might also reduce the returns. So that's the decision that people either need to make themselves or they need to consult a professional to help them make. Another big topic for the TSP is the recent report on the TSP millionaires and the levels of those that are you know going on right now. I think it's been actually quite a big increase since the number of TSP millionaires for 2022. Uh, Any insights into why that might be the case? Well, one very easy insight, Drew, is that the market went up. So one thing about TSP millionaires that I've noticed, and it's not unexpected, 
is the people that do better are the ones that had a higher percentage invested in the stock funds, the C and the S and the I fund and the bond funds. And they were the people that didn't pull out when the markets crashed. But the other thing that you cannot deny is the number of TSP millionaires is very much a function of how long people have been investing. It's just that's the way investing is. You know, these are people didn't worry about the ups and downs of the markets. They just believe that stocks were outperformed and they've been working longer than the people who are not millionaires. And so they made good decisions, but then they've been investing for a long time. So then if that's the case, if you're speaking to a federal employee who might be 25, 30 years old, they're just at the start of their career, do you recommend just kind of sticking with it? Or what would you say they should do to try to eventually reach that TSP millionaire status? Historically, you've been much better off having a higher percentage in the stock funds, not pulling money out in anticipation of a market crash or because the market had crashed. When we get stock market crashes, that's a good time to be buying. And also, people can be more aggressive with their biweekly investments. You know, even if they don't want too much in stocks, it doesn't mean that their biweekly investments shouldn't be more heavily concentrated to go to the stock funds because they're just putting in a smaller amounts every two weeks. And if the market goes down, they're buying. So they kind of want the markets to go down. You need to have a long-term outlook. And even for people who are getting ready to retire, remember that you know you could retire at 65 and easily be alive at 95. People need to have a very long-term outlook on their retirement. And over 30 years, I don't know people don't expect stocks to outperform over a 30-year period compared to the bond funds. Great. Well, Art, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today and thanks for being here. Okay, Drew, thank you for having me on. That's certified financial planner Art Stein talking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.